So today we are continuing in our stretched series. Over the past two weeks, we have been examining a way of life that, let's be honest, leaves us a little stretched out. <laughs> All right, there was the one bad joke. It's done. We can move on now. Everyone take a deep breath. Great. I just wanted to let it sit a little bit longer. Okay. Um, so yeah, so we've been examining a way of life that that includes a lot of different things, lives filled with jobs, relationships, kids, exercise, sleep, and much more, most of which, many of which, are good things. But the abundance of these leaves us feeling weary. We have addressed head-on the problems associated with living this way, and we've started to ask some seriously difficult questions about our spiritual lives as well. We've asked questions like, has church become just another addition to an already maxed-out life? Or is following the way of Jesus actually adding life to our souls? Are we being stretched in the way a rubber band is when it reaches its maximum capacity? Or are we being stretched like a muscle before a marathon? Essentially, we are asking ourselves as a church, as a community, what do our lives look like? So two weeks ago, Pastor Gris stood up here with a, uh, a bucket and some blocks, and we saw how quickly our lives can get filled up. And then we asked the question, yeah, but what about church? And then all of a sudden we realize, oh man, it's just like, an, it's like more to do, actually. It's like my life is already maxed out. And then I have these other things like finding a good church and getting my kids plugged into youth group and getting me plugged into a small group. And it seems a little overwhelming. And then last week, Pastor Jason came with a strong word about a serious spiritual practice that we call Sabbath. Plugging into our lives times of rest, times of intentional peace. And, you know, I've been asking myself the question, what does it look like for me? I mean, I, I'm, I'm a young guy, I have a full-time job, I have a wife, and I have a very new baby, seven-month-old, beautiful baby girl. Uh, and she's awesome, but she kind of takes up a lot of my time, <laughs> you know? And so Sabbath isn't what it used to be, where I could just be like, hey, let's, my wife and I, let's go take a walk, or let's take a day to just chill out. Like, that doesn't exist with a seven-month-old, you know what I'm saying? And so one of the things I've been trying is, uh, in my car ride, I live in St. Paul, I work in Shoreview, so in my car ride, I've said, all right, God, this is my like momentary Sabbath. I'm not going to listen to music. I'm going to say, this is your time. Speak to me. Uh, allow me to, to hear what you're trying to say. I've had Dan keep me accountable, which he's done a great job of. And, and been a, like, it's been really good. I've, I've had times of clarity with the Lord, but I've also been asking myself, what if Sabbath wasn't a thing that I do on my way to work? What if it was the destination? You know what I'm saying? I've been asking myself those kinds of questions because of the series that we're in. So that's kind of where we've been. And in the next two weeks, we're going to be hearing again from Pastor Chris about how the kingdom of God and the way of Jesus helps us reorder our lives around issues like finances and gratitude, which I think are really timely as we go into this next season of the holidays and really any time in our lives as Westerners. How putting godly practices around these disciplines provide us with true freedom. Imagine finances providing true freedom digging deeper and deeper into what it looks like for us to be actively seeking first the kingdom of God in our ordinary lives. And to reinforce this idea, we have been practicing a communal memory verse, Matthew six thirty three. So if you would, and I would encourage you, we're like three weeks in. So if you're feeling bold, like close your eyes and go for it. But Matthew six thirty three, please say this with me. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Amen. Such a good centering passage as we go through this series, but really also just through our lives. 
So that's where we've been. That's where we're going. And that leaves us here today. The purpose of this whole series is to address that many of us are stressed out and stretched too thin and are in need of a refreshed and helpful way of seeking first the kingdom of God, of making church not just something we go to, but something that aids us in our daily work of living well. But the thing is, is that this result of living well, which is kind of our aim, this only comes when the kingdom of God is not in addition to our lives, but the very framework our lives are lived within. So in this series, we are going to, like Pastor Jason did last week, I thought he did a great job. I mean, he inspired me to, to try it. We are going to give you very practical ways of living into the kingdom of God. That's a huge part of it. If we're not doing something about our faith, it becomes just this thing that we associate with because of whatever reason. So we're going to supply you with practical things to do. But new practices don't always equal transform life. They don't. New, new things to do don't always make you transformed from the inside out. And that, friends, is the goal. Transformation is the goal. So today, we are going to pause in the middle of this series. There, there were two sermons before this one. And there will be two sermons after this one. And we are going to ask ourselves what this way looks like. What it means to follow Jesus as we strive to find our way in the kingdom of God. And the first thing I, if you're taking notes today, I encourage you to write this down. The first thing I have for you is this. The best way to live in God's kingdom is by following the king. We're going to focus on the following the king today. Now, before I go any further, I think I have to address something kind of culturally important. Do we have any baseball fans in the house? Do we have any Cubs fans in the house? Even more specifically, hey, you guys, you did it. I mean, seriously, congratulations. It's been like, what, 108 years? So, wow, that's a big deal. I mean, so I'm not really a sports guy, obviously. I mean, just like... It's not my thing. Never been great at it. Like I did theater in high school. So, um, but, but I love a good story. You know what I mean? I'm kind of romantic at heart and baseball is kind of a romantic sport. You know what I mean? Cause they're like, it's been long for so long and they're like curses. And then when the curses are finally broken, it's like this huge, oh yeah, America, you know? <laughs> And the Cubs did it. Like, I, I mean, I, I, I'll confess I didn't watch the game, but I read about it. Okay. <laughs> And it was a big deal. Now, let, let, me, let me just quickly, like, kind of right turn segue here. It was a huge deal. But if you ask any Cubs fan, and I have a couple of friends that are diehard. Like, they grew up in Chicago. They are Cubs fans to the core. If you ask them, how did it happen? Their response will never be overnight. Right? Unless you were in a coma for 108 years. Or 109 years, however long. Like, it took a long time to, to get the Cubbies back on top. You know what I'm saying? And, and here, here's the thing. If, if I gathered a, a group of guys and we, we formed a baseball team, uh, of which I was playing on, so already not looking good. And we were like, we're going we're gonna to go and we're going to become our own MLB team and we're going we're gonna to win the World Series. And we're not going to practice. We're just going to want it really, really, really bad. How do you think we'll do especially with me leading the team. Not well, okay? It's just not going to look good for us. But, but what if we really want it? I mean, like, we're serious about wanting to hold that trophy above our heads 
and wear goggles because everyone – I learned that the reason people wear goggles in the room is because champagne will, like, burn your eyeballs out when they're, like, celebrating. That's true. I totally, because I read about it instead of watching it. Um, anyways, it, pro- it probably wouldn't work out very well. I mean, the Cubs won the series for a, a lot of reasons, I'm sure. But one crucial one is that they, those guys live as baseball players, right? They're not bankers and then also kind of on the side. They sort of play every weekend or whatever. Like, they are baseball players. They live their lives in order to be great at that, their sport. And my question is, should we look at our faith any differently? Honestly. If our faith is something that is central to who we are, which hopefully it is, shouldn't we be also practicing it like a baseball player would practice his craft? I think so. So with that in mind, let's go to our text. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Matthew chapter 11, and we will start in verse 28. Matthew 11, verse 28. It's a fairly familiar couple of verses. Um, And here it goes. Come to me. This is Jesus talking. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Can someone say amen to that? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. These are some of the most comforting and like beautiful verses of, of Jesus' teaching. And they've been verses that weary Christians have come back to for centuries because of that. But notice something interesting. Keep this up here for a second, Mike. Um, notice Jesus says, he, he's, inter- he's asking people, come into this life of rest. I can give you rest. And, and the, the pathway to that is take my yoke upon you. It's interesting that as Jesus defines the life of peace for his followers, he uses imagery of work. Right? Pastor Chris briefly mentioned this verse on week one, and he said that this yoke that Jesus is referring to is actually his way or his teaching or his outlook on life, how God intermingles with our real lives. Um, And so when he invites the weary to come and rest, he is not inviting us over for like pizza and Netflix. You know what I'm saying? Like he's inviting us into a new kind of way of living. One that doesn't leave you weary, but supplies you with peace. And so the real question is, and this, I encourage you to write this down too, what even is a yoke, right? I'm, I'm guessing this vernacular is not something we use every day. Like when was the last time you were at a coffee shop and you heard someone say like, oh man, my yoke broke down last week and I have to go to the yoke repairman and he's got to repair my yoke. He's going to charge me an arm and leg for my yoke. Okay, bad joke number two, okay? <laughs> Probably not very often, right? But... But in its day, in its day, it was the apex of agricultural cultivation. It is a tool, though, that has been, um, it it literally was and is a tool. It's still used today, I'm sure, by some. Um, But probably not super recently because it's been replaced in our culture by technology and innovation. But literally, a yoke was a farming tool. I think we have a first century. Yes. Wow. Yoke, right? It harnessed the power of two oxen. Two oxen would kind of sit in there. That uh, middle iron ring would attach to a wagon, and that wagon would plow your field. And it, it was a tool that integrated power and productivity. 
which is why in Jewish and rabbinic tradition, it became shorthand for a rabbi's teaching or his way. A rabbi's yoke was his integrated perspective on how the life of God works in everyday life, which is why Jesus says, hey, if, if you want to come into my rest, take my yoke upon you. Learn how to live like I do. A common invitation from rabbis in the first century to people they were wanting to make their disciples was for them to take their yoke upon them, their way of interpreting the scriptures and adding it to their life. The transferring of a rabbi's yoke to another person was his way of saying, come follow me, come be like me, come be my disciple. And so Jesus' invitation in Matthew 11 is not an uncommon one. However, what is uncommon is who it was available to, right? What was uncommon was that while most rabbis only entrusted their yoke to a small number, somewhere between 5 and 15 disciples, Jesus seemed to say, anyone who was weary or heavy laden, come to me, take my yoke upon you, and I will give you rest. His yoke was available and open to everyone. And you might be asking yourself the question, why? Because Jesus' yoke His way is the integrated hinge point upon which the kingdom of God and our ordinary lives meet. In order to better understand this, I want to talk quickly, briefly about the Jewish and rabbinic educational system. Okay? Now, um, with this, the, the reason I want to talk about this is because this is the model that Jesus himself used to bring disciples in. And it's still, I promise you, relevant today. But fair warning, there's some like History Channel stuff coming your way right now. So if history's not your thing, just hang with me. I promise there's going to be like, there's stuff coming that you're going to want to listen for. But History Channel stuff is coming up. All right? You with me? Head nods. Love it. Okay. So the question then becomes, what does it mean to take Jesus's yoke or his way upon us? How do we use the way of Jesus as our primary tool of seeking first the kingdom of God, right? So the Hebrew word for disciple is telmedin. Can you say telmedin? Really good. Telmedin literally in Hebrew means uh, student or follower. But don't think like U of M student who's going to classes every once in a while. A telmedin, a disciple in the first century was less about learning information and learning about a and rather, learning about a new way of living. Now, learning a new way of living requires you to learn new information, but it primarily hinges upon what you do with it. So there were three levels of Jewish education in the first century, and these were the apex of understanding how to fit into the world. The first level was called Bet Sefer, or House of the Book. Now, this was essentially a primary school, like a grade school. Uh, you would get students from age age 9 to uh, 12, and you would come and you would learn everything from history to culture to arithmetic to reading and writing. Um, It's everything that we kind of still teach today. But on top of that, you would then put to memory the first five books of the Old Testament called what they call the Torah. Now, has anyone ever read the first five books of the Old Testament? Like, it's kind of an intense five books. Like, I had a hard time memorizing times tables when I was nine years old. And these kids are memorizing word for word the word of God. No pressure. But that was their system. And that was a, that's why they called it Bet Sefer, because it was the house of the book. 
And typically at the end of those three or four, four years, you were done. Most, most girls who came to this went back to, to their houses and their moms taught them how to take care of a house, take care of the farm, take care of, of, the, of their husbands, take care, like get ready to be a wife, all of that. And if you were a boy, you would go home and you would learn kind of the yoke of your father. So if he was a tax collector, you'd be a tax collector. If he was a carpenter, you would be a carpenter, blacksmith, blacksmith, you get it. Um, and that was that was a big cutoff there. Lots of students were done at those four years and like, sweet, I'm out. But the best would move on to the next section. And the next section of, of learning was called Bet Talmud or the house of learning. Now, this was literally a physical building. The other one could have been done in your living room. Uh, think of like homeschooling in our context today. But this one was an actual building only for boys and it, it ranged in age from age like 12 to 15. And what they would do, these young men, they, they would learn from a full-time teacher, which was kind of a big deal back in the day, to have a full-time person dedicated to just teaching. And what they would do is they would take the five books of the Torah that they memorized and then memorize the rest of the Old Testament. And then on top of that, they would also memorize different rabbis' interpretations of the rest of the Old Testament. Is anyone feeling dumb right about now? Okay. It, it, this was super intense. And we're talking about 12 to 15 year olds. But this was their focus, their aim. They wanted to get the information right so that they could go to the next level. And the next level was to become a Talmudine. But in order to become a disciple of a rabbi, there was a seriously intense process you had to go through. First, you had to get an interview with a rabbi, which meant you had to know somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody who could connect you with a rabbi. Like there weren't a ton of rabbis, obviously. You know what I mean? Like it's hard to become one. And so if you got an interview, which you probably didn't, you would then sit down with this rabbi and he would grill you on the Old Testament. And let me explain what I mean by that because we're kind of out of this context. But what I mean by that is he would, he would sit you down and first asked you, uh, I mean, he would just list hundreds and hundreds of passages from the Old Testament. And you'd have to place them in their exact point, which is kind of difficult. But then it gets harder. Then he would ask you, what is Rabbi Hillel's version of the Nephilim in Jeremiah? And you'd have to know exactly what that rabbi had to say about that particular passage. And then he would ask you a question. He would, he would quote a line from somewhere in all of the Old Testament. But what he was really referring to was actually three lines before it or three lines after it. And you would have to quote that line back to him. Hello? Like, what? And then, if you impress the rabbi enough, he would say a version of, will you come and be my disciple? And to which you're like, <laughs> yes. Like, like, I mean... I got excited when I graduated from college. Like, they are so pumped. You know what I'm saying? So, that's what would happen. But really, that's the beginning of your work. That's just the start of it. Because now that you are a disciple, your full-time job is with your rabbi. And you had three goals of being with your rabbi. But before I do that, I have to just briefly mention this. There is a huge, huge, huge difference between us as followers of Jesus and the disciples that rabbis in the first century called. And the difference is that 
everybody gets a chance with Jesus. Everybody. It does not matter how educated you are. It does not matter where you come from. It does not matter your ethnicity. The table is open to every person everywhere. And not only that, but it equates to like a lot of peace and wholeness and a truly fulfilled life. It's a good deal. Just saying. That's the biggest difference. But in both cases, that's just the beginning. Getting called to be a disciple is just the beginning. And you have three goals as a disciple. We have three goals of being a disciple of Jesus today, as did the Talmudines of the first century. And the first goal is this, to be with Jesus. Now, disciples in the first century, what I mean by be with them, I don't mean that First century disciples casually hung out with their rabbis at a trendy coffee shop while they discussed the deeper sections of the Torah. Instead, what I mean is that they quite literally spent every waking moment with their rabbi. They followed, literally followed them everywhere. I mean, these were like nomadic people because in order to teach about your yoke of the world, you had to go places and tell them, you know, they didn't come to you. So as you were walking and think in the desert, right, in the Middle East, you are out in the sun and your disciples are just kind of like trailing behind you. There is a really prominent, uh, well-known Hebrew blessing for young Talmudines, which, which I think I might have it. Yeah, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. It, it, was, it was like a blessing if at the end of the day you were disgusting, Because you were like following your rabbi, soaking in every word he had to say, every movement he made. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. So us today with Jesus, what does this mean? It it means essentially that, that we strive to live a life of constant connection with God. A life dedicated to, to soaking up his presence and, and thinking about the way he would interpret and act in our world today. Uh, there, there's this scholar, um, his name is Dallas Willard, and he puts it in a really, uh, I think, profound and powerful way when he says this. The first and most basic thing we can do is to keep God before our minds. Isn't that good? I love that. This is the fundamental secret of caring for our souls. Our part in this practicing the presence of God is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to him. And the early time of our practicing, we may well be challenged by our burdensome habits of dwelling on things less than God. He's so generous. (laughs) Um, But these are habits and not the law of gravity and can be broken. A new grace-filled habit will replace the former one as we take intentional steps toward keeping God before us. Love that idea. Soon, our minds will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to the north. And this last line, just so good. If God is the great longing of our souls, he will become the pole star of our inward being. Yes, and amen to that. That is, that is a picture of what being with Jesus looks like. The second goal of, of disciples in general is to become like Jesus. To become like him. Disciples of the first century, again, took this overwhelmingly literal. They would, they would practice their rabbi's tone of voice. They would wear ex- exactly the same kind of clothes their rabbi wore. I mean, they, they were serious about being the carbon copy of their rabbi. A common moniker for great rabbis, specifically those who were well-loved for their ability to teach, 
was that of a fisher of men. Because they had the uncanny ability to draw into new realms of understanding and living, much like a fisherman draws in its catch. And so in Matthew 4, 19, Jesus speaks to an actual fisherman, Peter. And he says, hey, you know what? Drop your nets and I will make you a fisher of men. In other words, you're a fisherman now and I will teach you to be a great teacher like me. Which probably meant a big deal to him because he was probably in that first rung of students that didn't make the cut for the next one. So he learned what his dad did. And now he's got a rabbi looking at him saying, hey, I will make you like me. So Peter drops his stuff and goes with him. And his job then was to become like him. And we as a church are constantly asking ourselves, what does it look like for us to be becoming like Jesus? How are we putting Jesus's practices to practice? And this takes many forms. Like on Sunday, today, later, we will gather around the Lord's table and, and celebrate communion. We will also faithfully preach the word of God. We will confess our sins communally. We will celebrate when people have babies. I mean, we will celebrate when God is doing things in Mexico. We will gather and celebrate the things of God in order to live into them better. And I would also point in your bulletin, there's this little sheet that says, find your next on it. I would also point you towards these continuums, which we are striving to help the people in our community move deeper into, to discovering God more fully, to connecting with one another, to stewarding our money well, to serving, reaching out and leaving a legacy. We are constantly working and tweaking what it means to be becoming like Jesus. And like I said earlier, a life of discipleship is an integrated life, right? It it isn't one that is broken up into a million different pieces. And so we have been considering how we as a church create a more integrated lifestyle, specifically how we can connect with one another better and to connect with God on a deeper level. And we know the great benefits of gathering once a week together. But we also know that the challenge is living a life of God outside of this place throughout the week. So one of the things that we are developing is something that we like to call small church. And what it is, basically, is that these would be gatherings in homes in different communities with the sole purpose of learning how to follow Jesus alongside of our neighbors and friends. And the thing about following Jesus is, is that it's not about trying harder It's about training well. And we believe that a helpful way in learning how to follow Jesus is done in the context of small, intentional, and transformational communities. Because again, friends, the goal is transformation. And we want to help that along as best we can. Lastly, the third goal is this. To be able to do what Jesus did. Amen. The whole point of discipleship was, was to be able to do what your rabbi could do. I have a friend who's a tattoo artist. And uh, before he was, they do apprenticeship or discipleship practically really, really well. I don't have any tattoos, but hearing the story was like, I, I get a tattoo probably of like an eagle right here. No, my grandpa has an eagle tattoo right here. Anyways, um, what they do is, is before he could ever give an original tattoo, he had to perfectly be able to model what his teacher was doing. I mean, line for line, shape for shape. Before he could ever do anything original, he had to be able to model that he could could stand the test of learning how to become like someone else to do the job well. And so I say this to say, I say all of that to say this, discipleship to Jesus doesn't work as a hobby. It just doesn't. 
It doesn't work as something that we also do. No peace will be found if devotion to Jesus means that we are trying to do good things or act like Jesus when, we, when he was put on the spot and not how he lived his entire life. Again, Dallas Willard. I feel like this sermon should be brought to you by Dallas Willard today. But he has another great quote where he says this. Jesus never expected us simply to turn the other cheek, go the second mile, bless those who persecute us, give unto them that ask, and so forth. These responses generally and rightly understood to be characteristic of Christ-likeness were set forth by him as illustrative of, and Hank, this is so good, what might be expected of a new kind of person. One who intelligently and steadfastly seeks above all else to live within the rule of God and be possessed by the kind of righteousness that God himself has. And so I end with where I started, that we are seeking first the kingdom of God, but it makes no sense to seek the kingdom without following the king. The last point I would have you write down is this. The framework of the kingdom of God only makes sense when we are taking the yoke of Jesus upon us. The truth is, we are all disciples of something. Something. We are all becoming like something. And I would encourage you to think 10 years, 15, 30 years down the line, who, if you stay the same now, who are you becoming then? My encouragement is to get to know Jesus and be more like him day after day after day. So what we're going to do is we're going to practice meeting with Jesus now, becoming like him now. Um. Before we do, we have a song If the band wants to come. Uh, it's called Follow You. And, and it's basically my sermon in a song. And it's set up for you to just sit and, and, and think and allow God. Imagine this is a miniature Sabbath, friends. Like this is God's time to talk to you about what he is saying. Not what I'm saying, but what he is saying to you. And the implications of a life of following Jesus. And then afterwards, I'll come up and we'll read liturgy together. We'll read scripture and we'll pray together. And we will come around the Lord's table and meet with Jesus.